This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Today, John Lilich speaks about the Transactive Grid project, which aims to localize energy production through the creation of microgrids. John's idea of using pure incentive systems for solving an infrastructure problem is really cool. We also touch on the early days of consensus and the total return swap. With respect to consensus and specifically consensus enterprise, uh, really, maybe, I guess, Andrew was kind of the first one that started venturing into the like business world outside of what we were doing at that time, which was just developing decentralized applications and building software. And then uh, Igor and I really kind of joined Consensus in earnest, I would say, in July, maybe June, July, something like that. And he and I together... We were doing a lot of business technology kind of uh, consulting, particularly in New York. And I think I think we just tried to maybe define our uh, foray into enterprise a little bit more. And so right around that time, we kind of all got together and we said, okay, let's put forth a concerted effort to try and really see if we could test the waters a little bit and see what the response would be like from from the enterprise community, if you will. And so right around July-ish, we started really focusing our, our efforts on attempting to build a professional services uh, group. And so Andrew, Igor, James, Slazos, and myself, we just, and then of course Joe as well, we started putting together, let's say, some artifacts, some documentation, some structure, organization. We put together some semblance of a salesforce type uh, organizational structure and then and then from there it just kind of like really started to gain a little, well from a startup perspective anyway it started to gain some momentum awesome so what is your what was your technological thrust in that effort well so i came to consensus having worked at a company called uh, lo3 which is a um, uh, kind of like a boutique energy project kind of development firm. And specifically, we were doing two things. One was Project Exergy, which is very interesting. It's basically taking the notion of combining computation and heat. And so the idea there is rather than all of the computation that constitutes what we know as the cloud being done in data centers, which are actually very energy intensive and quite inefficient, you know, wherein 50% of the energy that's consumed in a data center really goes towards cooling, you know, keeping the ambient temperature low enough so that the machines don't melt. And, you know, we started to think about, well, what would happen if we could distribute the computation and actually do the computation in the places where we needed the heat? So, so my background is more from the energy market side. And so we built a prototype, which 
basically is an overclocked gaming rig that has a water cooled sort of system wherein you know you run the thing as hot as possible you use the water cooling mechanism to draw the heat from the motherboard components and then we would store them in a, uh, a water tank like a thermal tank and then we could repurpose the heat for something useful which which in the case of our small little project was to heat our apartment and so the idea there was if you distributed the computation to the places where you needed the heat, you would end up with a much more sort of energy efficient and energy productive, which is basically what exergy means. It means productive energy, like the, the actual utility that you gain from the energy that you're consuming. And so that was kind of where it first started. And Project Exergy is like a little bit of a garage kind of hacker sort of I don't want to say cypherpunk, but definitely, you know, we sort of put together a little bit of a prototype in the garage and it kind of sort of works and we built a few of them. And uh, and, and the idea there kind of mapped on to a lot of the, let's say, distributed or decentralized kind of concepts that we've been exploring in the blockchain world anyway. And so that was kind of the first project. And then the next one was a little bit maybe more grand in scale, and that was the Brooklyn Microgrid project, which was essentially a... uh, So microgrids are really interesting. A microgrid is basically when you have a facility that has generative and storage capacity independent of the grid, so you can generate your own energy and store your own energy, and you can actually provide ancillary services to the grid at the facility level. You kind of change the dynamic of the interactions between the utility and the customers, Because traditionally, the utility would generate power somewhere off-site, deliver it to the customer, and then the customer would pay them. And that was just the way things worked. Well, now, as the price of uh, solar continues to really dramatically drop, we've actually reached price parity with coal. So it's it's just as cheap, if not cheaper, to build a solar installation than it is to build a coal power plant. So as the price of solar drops, as that technology continues to proliferate, what happens when the grid, the physical infrastructure of the grid, power production decentralizes? What types of new business logic layers can we build on top of that? And so the Brooklyn microgrid is a community-scale effort in the Park Slope and Gowanus communities of Brooklyn to basically install a whole bunch of PV and a whole uh, – PV is a photovoltaic, so solar. Yeah. A whole bunch of PV and a whole bunch of batteries – and CHP, combined heat and power units, so that the facilities within the Brooklyn microgrid, within those communities, can generate, store, and store their own energy and add resiliency to the grid. And also, in the case of New York, given that not too long ago we had Hurricane Sandy, which was a huge catastrophe, although we did luck out because had it happened a couple weeks later when the temperature dropped substantially, we would have had a, a terrible loss of life. You know, because the grid was down for quite some time, the state of New York and, and really the United States realized, oh man, we need to build a bunch of resilience into the grid. So there's this tremendous push towards microgrids. So reinforcing at the facility level the resiliency of the grid by installing generative and storage capacity. And, uh, and so that becomes very interesting when you start to think about it from the business logic layer. And very quickly we arrived at Ethereum and we thought, well, Maybe we could potentially explore uh, ways for kind of this notion of the Uber of energy where people could trade peer-to-peer uh, digital assets that represent generative capacity. And so that was 
like the context or the you know the background and some of the projects that I was working on that eventually led me to to consensus. Do you see a symmetry between the economic flows that we have and uh, that that are being experimented with in using Ethereum and the energy flows that you were developing prior to getting involved? Uh, yeah, a- absolutely. And so maybe to just give a bit more definition, essentially what we did was, and even prior to the energy stuff, I knew Christian and some of the others, uh, Christian Lundquist and, and others from Consensus, just from New York City meetups. And I spent some time working at the Bitcoin Center and it was kind of involved. And I've been in the Bitcoin world since maybe 2010-ish. And so we all kind of knew each other a little bit. And with respect to uh, specifically the question that you're asking, absolutely. And so the notion here is we built a system on top of Ethereum, an open energy platform that syncs into the smart meter. So the smart meter is effectively an oracle. And we take the consumption profile generated by the smart meter. And if the facility has a surplus, so in other words, they generate more you know, electricity from the photovoltaic systems than they consume, we can use the token issuance and management system to represent that surplus in the form of a digital asset. And so the really interesting thing there to consider is there already exists a market in the United States for buying attributes that represent some amount, in this case, at least a megawatt of clean renewable energy produced somewhere. And so this is the renewable energy credits or RECs market. And the way that works is effectively it's a government scheme, which which has been tremendous. It's helped stimulate the proliferation of renewable, large-scale renewable projects across the country. And so the idea there is, let's say you are a, a project developer and you build a really big solar farm in Texas and now you're producing, I don't know, 10 megawatts like uh, every month. And for every megawatt that you produce, the state or the government will issue you a renewable energy credit, uh, which you can then sell onwards. And so what ends up happening is utilities will buy those renewable energy credits, which again are attributes that a megawatt of clean renewable energy was generated and they can use that rec, they can use those attributes that they purchase from, let's say, solar farm developers or wind farm developers to satisfy their state regulatory requirements for having, for meeting their like clean renewable energy quotas. And so you could have the wind farm or the solar farm in Texas as the project developer selling onward each megawatt that that is generated in the form of renewable energy credit to, let's say, the utility or a utility in the state of Vermont, uh, who could then use that credit to satisfy their state regulatory requirements. Now, where it gets a little bit funny is when you look at this market, it is very regional. So there are authorities like on the West Coast, the Midwest, the East Coast that oversee basically the issuance and trade of those uh, renewable energy credits. And as you can imagine, they don't necessarily interoperate very well. So oftentimes, this utility in Vermont that buys the rec from the power producer or the solar farm in Texas sometimes ends up selling that credit again to another utility or a wholesaler who then retails it. So you, you have the double spend or in this case, the double count problem, which is which is like not the desired result, particularly when we're talking about basically environmental attributes. So if you double count or double spend, 
then you negate the benefit of uh, effectively the program. And so what we did was uh, rather than sort of had this meta wholesale market, we localized it. And so now the consumer has a choice. And so that choice is, let's say you live in Brooklyn and your neighbor across the street has a large PV array and is producing a bunch of solar and is on our peer-to-peer energy platform and is generating tokens that represent a surplus. Well, you as a consumer, you can choose to buy those tokens directly from the na- your neighbor. And in doing so, you're, you're doing a couple things. Number one, you are recognizing the local environmental benefit because not only are you buying the tokens, which are an attribute that some amount of clean energy was generated, but also because it's your neighbor, physics tells us that there's a really good chance those electrons are actually making it to, you know, like your refrigerator. Whereas uh, with the Rex market, there is a retail component to it. Like, for example, in New York State, there's, I won't mention any names, but there are third-party retailers that buy Rex wholesale, and then they retail them to customers. And customers pay a 30% premium thinking that they're buying clean energy, or, or rather green energy, when in fact all they're buying is the attribute that some amount was generated from a clean source. And what ends up happening is you get like a lot of really cool Brooklyn hipsters that sign up for these like, uh, you know, retail clean energy programs. And they don't realize that all they're buying is the attribute and not the electrons themselves because the electrons from Texas are not going to make it to your house in Brooklyn. And so you end up with a scenario where people leave their air conditioner running all day long during the summer. And they feel good about it because they're buying clean green energy from some retailer and they're paying a premium for it. But actually, the electrons that are meeting the demand from that air conditioner running all day are coming from the cogen plant in the Brooklyn Naval Yard, which is not a clean source and is actually raining down more harmful particulates in the local community. Uh, so, so there's a disassociation there. People don't actually realize that they're buying attributes rather than the electrons themselves. And with our sort of Ethereum-enabled peer-to-peer transactive system, because we sync into the smart meter and because effectively the smart meter is an oracle and because electrons go to the nearest load, which is what physics tells us, if you are buying tokens that represent overproduction from your neighbor, you are buying the environmental attribute that your neighbor, he or she produced you know, that amount of electricity from a clean source. And you're also in all likelihood or in some degree buying, uh, you're actually getting those electrons as well. And so you're localizing the, the environmental and economic benefit by purchasing tokens from your neighbor rather than buying slices of a wholesale renewable energy credit, let's say, a product that some retailer is selling you in New York when, in fact, they're buying those credits, those renewable energy credits from a power production plant in Texas. And there's no way those electrons are getting to you. So in this way, we can... By enabling like a peer-to-peer sort of mechanism, we can map on the business logic layer such that it like more accurately describes what's happening like in the actual, you know, the physics of the electrons actually getting to your, d- delivering power to your, uh, for your needs. That's a fantastic explanation, John. Can you just run through the information infrastructure for me? So we've got the power meter itself, you referred to as an oracle. And so there's obviously an information feed from there. Where does that information go? And how is that routed around to the bill that the customer pays? And how is that bill then? uh, And then how is the 
funds that the customer pays for their electricity routed to the person who generated that electricity? Sure. Uh, And that's a great question. So the way we've built this first iteration of of this peer-to-peer energy trading platform really just focuses on the business logic and accounting layer above what's happening in the wires under the ground. So it has nothing to do with the flow of the electrons. So in other words, if you if you have a house in Brooklyn and you have a PV array and you overproduce, what happens is the surplus of energy that you've generated goes back into the grid anyways. And Con Edison, the local utility, gives you a credit for basically your meter spins in reverse and they give you a credit for what you've put into the grid. And what they do is they give you like 50% of retail. So whatever they charge as a retail rate, you get half of that as a prosumer. And that gets applied to your consumption bill, which offsets your cost when, you know, at different times of the year when you're not producing as much energy and maybe you're consuming or drawing more for the grid. And so that's kind of the mechanism that the utility uses. What we've done is rather than, let's say, getting that credit from the utility, which you really have no say in, they just basically mandate, well, you're only going to get half of retail and that's that. There's nothing you can really do about that. Rather than doing that, there's already an existing premium market. So the renewable energy credit market that I described earlier in New York State, for example, is something like a 30% premium. So consumers are willing to pay a premium for, well, what they think is clean energy, but actually what they're buying is environmental attributes. So there's already in a market there. People are willing to pay extra for, for clean, green energy. And so when you generate tokens that represent your surplus and you put them on an open market, consumers can still have that choice. They can say, okay, well, I'm willing to pay 30% or 20% or 10 whatever it is above retail. Or they can even say, I'm willing to pay retail. And that's still already a better deal for the prosumer than just getting that like 50% rebate from the utility. And so all of the transactions are happening, let's say, on a business logic layer above the wires, above the infrastructure, and it's all done in Ether. And so effectively, as a consumer, what I'm doing when I interact with this platform is I'm saying, okay, I have a choice. My choice is I can buy effectively retail renewable energy credits from this wholesaler and I can pay a 30% premium and I can use US dollars to buy that renewable energy credit, effectively that environmental attribute, or I can use Ether and I can rather than- Actually buy the electrons themselves or- Correct. Or be more likely to receive, to at least incentivize that local production. Exactly. And my money is going to my neighbor who in all likelihood will- spend those funds in the community uh, maybe maybe my neighbor has grandkids and they'll take their grandkids out for ice cream in the local ice cream parlor or something like that rather than my money is going to this wholesaler who's retailing these environmental attributes to me and I don't know who they are I don't know where they are I don't know where my money's going and so it's effectively at this initial sort of stage about giving the consumer a choice of where they want to or how they would like to spend what they've already sort of decided they're willing to spend as a premium in order to incentivize uh, renewable energy production. Boom. Perfect. That's a, uh, <laughs> that's a wrap on that. That's awesome. <laughs> no, that's, that's absolutely excellent. Because the thing is, this is supposed to be way more, you know, not as brutal and grinding a, uh, 
<laughs> you know, mat- you know, material as um, as some of the uh, you know as what a lot of the stuff that's going to be on the blog. You know, yeah. supposed to be interest interest stuff. So that's ideal. Yeah. Also, it gives us like a great like explanation for what is possible with Ethereum. You know, as opposed to just smart contracts. Well, you can do all the stuff with smart contracts. Well, well, Arthur, the the interesting thing is w- what we just talked about is just one. Let's say the initial push. Where it gets really interesting is using smart contracts and Ethereum as the substrate and smart contracts as the mechanism to um, basically optimize for grid conditions. And so this is where it gets really interesting. When you have a disparate grid, so you have multiple owners of hardware in the grid that has generative and storage capacity in a decentralized energy infrastructure, you effectively have a problem, which basically is the problem of agency. Who owns what? And where is the single absolute ubiquitous source of truth that we can all sort of agree upon so that we can effectively uh, solve the question of agency? So this relates to identity and self-sovereign identity. And then how do we optimize grid conditions? And, And so one way to think of this is every summer for like 60 hours, Con Edison has to fire up two very large coal power plants just to meet the demand of people turning on their air conditioners because it's sweltering hot in New York. And that is a very expensive proposition for them. With something like Ethereum and smart contracts, if you can imagine, let's say, an IoT device connected world, and the example I always use is England, and every day at predictable times, the grid surges because everybody in England turns on their kettle for tea time. Right, and yeah, that would so, probably be before the news or something. Everyone yeah. would be ready to sit down. Totally, I can, I can see that happening. It's like a big deal over there. And, uh, and so what happens when the kettle becomes an IoT device and now the utility can negotiate directly with the kettle and it can say, okay, all right, Arthur's kettle, if you don't turn on between, I don't know, like 8 in the morning and 10 in the morning during this peak demand, then we will send you some ether. And so this is the notion of megawatts or flexi-watts. So the absence of consumption is valuable to the utility and shifting your demand is also valuable to the utility. And they've got basically two options. They have to meet the demand, so they have to meet the surge. And they can either build you know, another substation, which will cost a billion dollars to meet that demand for, you know, in the case of New York, 60 hours or 40, however many, it's a very short period of time during the summer. Or they can incentivize the grid to optimize its behavior such that the peak demand consumption periods aren't as crazy, you know, and aren't as high. And so the way you do that, we think anyway, or the potential is to effectively enable the utility or power providers to have a mechanism that allows them to negotiate directly with hardware in the grid. And and if you had a tea kettle and if somehow your tea kettle could make you money and you lived in England and it could make you money just by not turning on, you know, like you could, instead of drinking your tea at 9 a.m., you could drink it at 11 a.m., you know, some amount of people will go for that. And maybe that amount is enough to sufficiently uh, smooth out that peak demand, if you will. And that is of tremendous value to the utility. And so that's really the next, and, and I'm not saying this is imminent, but, you know, one can see uh, there's potential for, 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 for this kind of mechanism to effectively incentivize the grid to uh, behave in a more rational and 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 and, and really optimize uh, grid conditions, which is very exciting. So if it requires 
the the minimal possible agency. I can see that that could have the, those small incentives could have a huge effect on uh, on the structure of a grid. I guess if if you had control of them, absolutely. And I I think one of the sort of points that gets overlooked oftentimes, and, and maybe it's a bit futuristic, but you know as we move as we continue to push forward with Ethereum and with the notion of smart contracts, we're going to see more and more machine-to-machine negotiation. We're going to see like prediction markets that work in a matter of seconds rather than weeks and months uh, that are used by machines to basically uh, determine like rational behavior. And so in this context, maybe it's crazy, maybe it's not, but you could imagine machines talking to each other and saying, okay, hey, let's let's figure out a more rational way to optimize behavior so that economically I benefit as a consumer and and you as the utility or the power producer also benefit because you know I'm optimizing my behavior and that's of value to you. And so you're exactly right. One could imagine a scenario where uh, we potentially could optimize grid conditions without even having to like do anything at all. Which is pretty cool. <laughs> That's the dream, isn't it? It's um, New Zealand had a. I was I was going to mention it before, um, but you had just done a great role. Um, New Zealand had a carbon credits initiative, and they like opened it up to the international market really strangely, um, and destroyed it. Totally wrecked the whole thing, and left us with no um, disincentivization scheme. Yeah, well, that, that's that's an interesting point that you're mentioning. Have you seen the Ethereum total return swap demo? Uh, I haven't. No. Oh, maybe I have. I mean, it's probably one of a million demos I've seen. I'm, I'm kind of uh, I'm <laughs> totally overwhelmed by this stuff. Eh? But um, right. is there a link to it? Or do, do you have the documentation? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send you the link. It's uh, so 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 basically James Slazas, along with a bunch of other people, Christian and Ava and some others, and Igor put together a decentralized application, which is basically a collection of smart contracts with a front end that enables two counterparties, unknown counterparties, to engage in a total return swap, which is basically a derivative uh, sort of trade uh, financial instrument, wherein you bet on the price of two underlying assets over a certain period of time. And you know the delta of the, of the two assets, depending on which way you're going, over that period of time is what you're betting on, and you know whoever wins wins, and and so so this sort of um, instrument is very interesting to sort of consider in the context of energy trading and kind of what you described earlier with respect to New Zealand and the de incentivization and some of the other stuff that was going on. When you have uh, like a traditional sort of uh, brokerage type platform infrastructure wherein certain people can possibly arbitrage or take advantage of favorable market conditions such as having access to information or having maybe the ability to, I don't know, politically uh, influence the outcome of certain legislation, etc. You end up with scenarios wherein effectively what you described in New Zealand is possible. Now, with the total return swap demo, this is actually a very powerful example of how you can not only eliminate the potential for any of that stuff, but you can also ensure that, um, let's say, we have a much more efficient use of capital. And so the idea here is that uh, 200 unknown counterparties can engage in a transaction directly without the need for any type of intermediary. And we can ensure that uh, margin and collateral uh, asset requirements and recalibration happens such that 
you never have to unwind a trade and you never have to worry about counterparty risk. You never have to worry about basically the other person not having enough money in the account to sort of like ensure that the trade uh, doesn't go all squirrely on you. And this is very powerful in the context of energy because energy trading is effectively like one big sort of massive derivatives market that effectively can influence the future securitization or production or can securitize the future production of energy. And so when you have uh, potentially mechanisms that allow for arbitrage or all sorts of other market manipulation type activities that actually have an impact in the real world, whether it's something like Enron, where they totally collapsed uh, the price of all sorts of different stuff to to, to where states uh, had brownouts and blackouts and the lights weren't on for many people. You know, it, it's very powerful when you introduce the notion of smart contracts such that they mechanistically ensure that this type of market manipulation or fraudulent behavior or otherwise uns- unscrupulous activity cannot occur. And so, you know, the smart contracts effectively encumber funds and only release the funds as prescribed by the terms of the smart contract. And so you just can't do any of the funny stuff in the energy trading world that and, and I'm not saying I'm not saying institutions do that necessarily, but there is potential and we've seen it in the past. Again, Enron is a great example. When you eliminate that potential vis-a-vis smart contracts, you end up with a much more robust, a much healthier, and certainly a much more, you know, accurate kind of representation in the markets of what's actually happening in the physical world. And and that's that's really exciting to sort of think about as well. So anybody, you know, I highly recommend you check out the total return swap demo. If you just Google ETRS, you know, consensus, Microsoft, there's a ton of stuff on it. I don't want to like get too long winded as far as the actual demo itself. Check out the video. You'll know exactly what I mean once you see it. Where can people find out about this, uh, these energy projects? You can visit consensus.net. You can go on LinkedIn and you can search well just find me john john lulich uh, i've written some stuff on there as well otherwise yeah you can find me on twitter at john or the next devcon event or any other event just come and say hi and uh, very happy to talk about this stuff thanks for listening head on over to etherreview.info for more episodes we can be reached at contact at etherreview.info or on twitter at Ether Review.